Psalm 78 is intersecting forgetfulness with uh, the Lord, with the God uh, of all reality, the living God. And so there's three things I want you to see. It's in your bulletin uh, that we'll talk about in the next few minutes. Number, well, number one, we'll look at why we forget God so easily. Number two, how he helps us remember him. And then finally, why we have hope that he remembers us. So why we forget God so easily, how he helps us remember him, and why we have hope that he remembers us. So why don't you stand up, we'll read this, uh, Psalm 78. And just FYI, uh, this psalm goes on another like 30 verses after this. Um, but this uh, beginning chunk is enough to kind of give us a sense of, of what's going on in the rest of it. This is a psalm of Asaph. That's who's talking. This is the word of the Lord. It's always fresh, never stale. Meets you where you are tonight. O oh, my people, listen to my instructions. Open your ears to what I'm about to say. For I will speak to you in a parable. I'll teach you hidden lessons from our past. Stories that we have heard and known. Stories that our ancestors or grandparents handed down to us. We won't hide these truths from our children. We will tell the next generation about the glorious deeds of the Lord, about His power, about His mighty wonders. For He, sent, he issued laws to Jacob. He gave instructions to Israel. He commanded our ancestors to teach them to their children so that the next generation might know them, even the children not yet born, and they in turn would teach their children. So each generation should set its hope anew on God, not forgetting these miracles, but obeying His commands. Then they will not be like their ancestors, stubborn, rebellious, unfaithful, refusing to give their hearts to God. The warriors of Ephraim, that was a tribe of Israel, though armed with bows, they turned their backs and they fled on the day of battle. They were afraid. They didn't keep God's covenant. They refused to live by His instructions. They forgot. They forgot what He had done, the great wonders He'd shown them, the miracles He did for their ancestors in Egypt and Zoan. For He divided the sea. He led them through. He made the water stand up like walls. In the daytime, He led them by a cloud, and all night by a pillar of fire. He split open the rocks in the wilderness to give them water, as from a gushing spring. He made streams pour from the rock, making the waters flow down like a river. And yet, they kept on sinning against Him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. Why don't we pray? Our God, we resonate so much with the second half of what we just read. We are forgetful people. We're busy. We're distracted. We have trouble keeping our attention on anything very long. But you are the God of all reality. You have surrounded us with evidence of your presence and your goodness and your power. You've even put that evidence inside of us in our consciences. And yet, God, in honesty, we tell you that we forget you daily. We go hours, weeks, months without thinking of you, and we live our own lives. Uh, and yet, even through this psalm, you show your patience and your grace to come and get us, to come and remind us, to come and reorient us, to call us home. Do that tonight, Father. Do that tonight, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. You can take a seat. Thanks. Well, I was reading, or actually listening to a podcast the other day about a kid named Daniel Solomon. 
Daniel Solomon sleeps sitting up because he did for the first seven years of his life. He slept sitting up for the first seven years of his life because he grew up in a Romanian orphanage. And for seven years, every night, he slept in a tiny little crib. And the reason he sat sitting up is because it was him and another orphan in the same crib. And the only room they had is to sit with their backs leaning up against the wooden slats, and they fell asleep. When he was coming up on eight years old, this American family went over to Romania. They went through all the process. They adopted uh, Daniel Solomon. They brought him back to their family in the States. And he still slept sitting up. He didn't know any other way, uh, even when he had his own bed. And his eighth birthday came around in the month of March. And so his new parents, his new family, mom and dad now, they threw a birthday party for him. And it actually, instead of being a happy celebrating moment, it, was, it turned into a fight, this little eight-year-old boy and his new mother and new father, because Daniel was convinced, like, he couldn't grasp what this thing called a birthday meant. He said, the month of March must not exist in Romania because I've never had something like this before. March has never been important for me. No one's ever talked to me about my birthday. Like, I don't even know what a birthday is. Um, and he got in a fight with his parents. And what happened over the next several years, and this is uh, grown-up Daniel telling this story on the podcast, what happened over the next few years is that moment started to breed a ton of suspicion in his parents. He thought they were manipulating him and lying to him. Um, he interpreted all of their approaches in love, all their attempts to care for him, to be patient with him, to help put his life back together. He interpreted all of that through the old story he was living in, not the new story that he'd been brought into through adoption, right? And so even when his mom and dad approach him to give him a hug or tell him goodnight or come into his room, he sees that through this old lens of the old story he was living in. He saw it as people who don't care for him. They don't think about him. They don't remember him. They're harsh, they're stern, there's no grace, there's no love. So guess what? The more mom and dad tried to love him, the more he thought they hated him. The more he left, the more he put up barriers, the more he backed down, the more suspicious he was of them. And he wasn't even capable of loving or being loved. Things got so bad that the cops just knew this address by heart. They would come all the time. He would get in fights with his parents as an eight-year-old boy. Psychologist after psychologist, he couldn't help him. The situation just keeps getting worse and worse and worse because all Daniel Solomon could remember was the story that he had lived for the first seven years of his life in the Romanian orphanage. And that story was so powerful and so dominant, so memorable, had such an influence on him, he couldn't wake up to the new reality he was already in, right? He was misinterpreting it. He was pulling his mom and dad, his brothers and sisters, into this old story where everybody's hateful, everybody's harsh, nobody loves me. And he assigned them roles. These are tyrants, uh, not mom and dad. So the, the story that he grew up in had tremendous power over him. And for Daniel Solomon, forgetting... The story that he actually lived in now, adopted, a legal son, has a mom and a dad and a room and a bed and friends and a community that's for him, 
Forgetting that reality was devastating. It was already true, but he didn't live into that. He didn't live, he wasn't aware of it. It was devastating. Forgetfulness for him was devastating. Some of you grew up in situations that might not be as severe as that, but you had that alcoholic father or mother. You were abused. Something bad happened to you. And you know that just because you leave a story, it doesn't leave you. Just because you move on from an awful past doesn't mean it leaves you. You carry that with you, and it, and it has power over you, and it, it tells you this is the way life is. Even if you've gotten into a place where you're in a very different life and a very different story. And it takes everything in you to forget that and to wake up to the new story you're living in. Look, the kind of forgetfulness that Psalm 78 is talking about isn't the kind of forgetfulness we usually joke about, like, forgot my car keys, or I didn't get much sleep, I forgot that I had homework due this morning. The kind of forgetfulness that Psalm 78, the chunk that I just read, the kind of forgetfulness and distraction that it's talking about is the personal, intimate, relational forgetting. For instance, did you ever have a parent forget your birthday growing up? It's not painful because they forgot the date. And you're like, well, it's okay. This is the day I was... They forgot you. That's why it's painful. You ever been at a place where you've introduced yourself like six times and they still don't remember your name? You're not annoyed because of their intellectual abilities. You are hurt because they've forgotten you, the person. They forgot you. Someone, you keep trying to hang out with someone. They keep saying, oh, I forgot to call you back. You you eventually begin to take that personally, right? Right? Because you know it's not the meeting they're forgetting, it's you they've forgotten. Because they're consumed with another story, consumed with some other desire that's made you very forgettable. That's the kind of forgetfulness Psalm 78 is talking about. Personal, intimate, relational forgetfulness. So I said the first point I wanted to talk about is how do we forget God so easily? It's ironic, actually. The way we forget God so easily is because we remember other stuff so well. A human being's attention span, um, it's not a computer. A computer can do many tasks at one time, but even for a computer, they start to heat up and you get the spinning beach ball even on your Mac. But a human brain, a human a life, our hearts, can usually only focus on one or two things at the same time with all of our attention, with all of our being. And everything else kind of recedes to the background. And so for Daniel Solomon, the story that dominated him, the thing that he remembered so well was that first seven years in Romania. So he didn't remember at all. He completely forgot the reality he was living in, right? That makes sense. He so remembered this that he couldn't remember this, this old reality versus this new one. And we are people who are caught between those two realities too. And we'll see in a second, we'll look at a few verses in here, but the the story that Israel, who this is written to, and us, The story that they were so caught up in, we could call it the me, myself, and I story. That was what dominated them, like for Daniel, the seven years in Romania. That's all they thought about. They interpreted everything through that story of me, myself, and I. And the story that we forget, because we don't have enough room for both of those, the story that recedes into the background, it grows distant, cold, has no emotional appeal to us anymore. That's the story of the living God and his world and what he's doing with his world. Right? That's the story that kind of recedes uh, to the background. And guess what? If we're living in this story dominated by this story, what do we do with God? 
We pull him into this story. We interpret him through this story of me, myself, and I, and he becomes a personal assistant that we call upon when we need something, right? Like, this is me, this is you, this is us. It's how our hearts work. Uh, we, we pull him into our story. We interpret him through that, just like Daniel interpreted his parents through a false story that he, was li- that he thought he was still living in. Uh, and we do the same thing. So we get suspicious of God. We run from him. We set up barriers. Like Daniel, life was running away from his parents, not running towards them. We get to places daily and weekly sometimes in our heart of hearts where life is found running away from God, not running towards him. Right? And so uh, one story masters us, and the other story fades away. You remember when Jesus said, uh, this, is a, this is something he talked about in relationship to money in particular, but it applies across the board in our lives. He said, no one can serve two masters. Right? There's not enough room. You've got to focus on one or the other. No one can serve two masters. He goes on, he says, either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. He says, you cannot serve both God and the world. Put it in the language of what we're talking about tonight. Um, Either we will forget one story and remember the other, or we will be devoted to one and despise the other. And what I mean by devoted is I mean invested in, focused on, alert to, tuned into like a radio station. We hear it. And the other one we'll forget, we'll wander from, we'll grow cold to. So I said we'd look at, the, look at a few verses and see how this is happening, how we see it happening in Israel's life. How are they living? Take a look at verses 8 and then 10 through 12. It's this little chunk kind of right in the middle of the, of the column break. And Asaph says, Israel was stubborn, rebellious, unfaithful, refusing to give their hearts to God like Daniel refused to give his hearts to mom and dad, like his heart to mom and dad. Verse 10, they did not keep God's covenant. They refused to live by his instructions. Why? Verse 11, they forgot God and what he had done, the great wonders he had shown them, the miracles that he did voluntarily at his own initiative for their sake, the great wonders he'd shown them, and his continual provision. Verse 17, they kept on sinning against him, rebelling against the Most High. So take that little case study with Israel. What did it reveal about what they most loved? What were they most after in their lives? You see that me, myself, and I story kind of coming to the surface? That's what they were after. Whatever I want in the moment I want it, uh, that's, that's what's kind of animating and moving my life forward is my desires, my desires, my desires. And God, because we can't focus on both, he becomes a distant second. He becomes background noise. They were still going to church. I'm sure they went to Bible studies. I'm sure they still talked to their kids about the Lord, but it was going through the motions. It was God talk. It had no power in it. In our lives, this looks like when our mind is most fascinated by the next Amazon purchase coming in the mail. Does that get a hold of your heart like me? I even follow the UPS tracking religiously. Yes, it's in Albuquerque. Tomorrow it's at my doorstep. And I only have two-day prime, so it's like 48 hours of a really fun thrill. But if, you're, if your life, if your mind most orbits around the next purchase coming, the, the kind of the American material consumer stuff, uh, then everything else becomes a little more boring. Every other story fades into the background a little bit more. When all of life becomes about getting the girlfriend or the boyfriend or kind of the next romantic 
thrill. Everything else um, fades to the background, and that's what your mind, what your attention is most focused on. If body image, reputation, what you're going to look like at the beach at spring break is the thing that most dominates your mind, your heart, your emotions right now, um, even this message right now is like Charlie Brown talk. Wah, 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 wah. Because your mind is thinking about that. And your emotions are tied to that. And it has a really powerful effect on you. That's the story you're in. And every other story you forget. This is what all of these stories, whether it's the purchases or whether it's uh, the intimate relationship or whether it's the body, whatever it is, the thing that all of the stories that we live inside of have in common is their orphan stories. It's just you and your cravings. No God, no other people, just you and your desires, which makes it a very lonely existence, very anxious existence, very powerless life. And that's where we are. That's kind of the diagnosis uh, piece of this psalm. So the reason remembering is so hard is because remembering is so attached to your heart and your desires. And that is complicated stuff, right? It's not as fixable as I want to get in shape. That's complicated stuff. Uh, just to make sure this is down to earth and not up, up here in the abstraction, a little bit of my story in college. I was, I've shared bits and pieces of this with you all throughout the spring, but grew up in the church, kind of like, we have similar stories a little bit, Luke. Grew up in the church, kind of like you, but it was at the end of college where God actually made me alive. I was dead before that. I went to church, I said all the right things, and I thought I was alive, but looking back, I was dead. And uh, he, through a lot of different ways, uh, brought me back to life, showed me that I am nothing before him, and that Jesus is everything, and that Jesus is able and willing uh, to bring me to God and to clean me. And so that happened like my last couple of weeks of college. It was a very inconvenient time, so I never got to do the go-to-RUF thing when I was in college. Um, I, was, I was your friend who said, oh, I'll be there, and I never showed up. But this, this happened, the first year was glorious. People will call maybe their first years as Christians like a honeymoon. It's like, I want to read my Bible. I want to pray. I want to fight sin, and it seems to be working. I don't struggle with those temptations anymore. Um, I always want to be around other Christians. I'm so encouraged by it. Church is awesome. Preach another hour, Pastor. <laughs> and then that year went by. And old habits, old struggles started to creep back in. Old desires started to get bigger and bigger again. The things that I thought had gone away uh, forever. And uh, I didn't care as much about reading my Bible. Prayer became a little bit more of a task, a duty. And guess what? Uh, I forgot the Lord with a disturbing frequency and depth. I got so stuck and caught in my own little world that that other story, I didn't have time for it. My emotions were dominated by this. My mind was dominated by this. I didn't have time uh, for that. So the question came up in retrospect, how did God get my attention when I was stuck again in my own little story, forgetting the gospel, forgetting grace, forgetting being alive in God? How did he get my attention? Two ways, discipline and discipleship. That's how he helped me remember him. That's how this psalm suggests he'll help you remember him. Which means this. After that first year of being a Christian, when life was easy and the Christian life was easy and I wanted to do everything, guess what? God 
began to discipline me because what Valeria said earlier is actually true. He loves, he loves his sons and daughters. And because I love Eli, I discipline Eli because I care about how Eli turns out. I want him to live. I want him to be able to tell the difference in lies and truth. And so the Lord started disciplining me, which means life got a lot harder really fast. For me, for some of you it looks differently, but for me that meant a lot of doubts about myself. Deep discouragement and depression about my ability to change. Deep doubts about my faith. Am I even a Christian? Like, I'm struggling with this and this and this. How am I alive? How am I a Christian if these are the sins I'm dealing with right now and they're not going away? They call it spiritual depression. I was like, God is not here. Where is he? And that's where I was for about a year and a half. And guess what? I was an RUF intern while this was all going on. But that's what life was like for me. That's what the Lord's discipline in my life was like. And what it led to eventually, besides a lot of sleepless nights, a lot of crying on the couch, what it led to eventually was for the first time in my life getting a truer and truer picture of how weak I am, how helpless I am, how I can't do anything anything uh, except through God's power and His grace. And that drove me back to God. Because I'd get even to the point of like, what if I'm not a Christian? I'm like, well, I know God has said anybody, anybody who looks to Jesus by faith, He will make alive. He will forgive your sins. So I was like, I don't know. But I do know where my refuge is because this God said that, and so I'm going back to him. It, it actually, all the depression, all the discouragement drove me back to him. And in the process, it called me out of all these stories I was living in, which, to be honest with you, is I wanted to be the awesome intern that everybody loved and thought was wise and cool and everything else. I wanted to be better than the last three before me, and I wanted to be talked about ten years after I left. That's honest. And... God got my attention in the midst of that, and he began to draw me out of that back to himself. And I began to forget this story and remember this story again. That's how he switched it, through discipline. John Newton says, uh, It's after a long experience of our own deceitful hearts, after repeated evidence of our weakness, our stubbornness, our ingratitude, our hard-heartedness, that we find that none of these things can separate us from the love of God in Christ. That is when Jesus becomes more precious to our souls. We love much because we've been forgiven much. How ironic. He says some of the clearest proofs that a Christian has of Christ's beauty has been brought about by me seeing the horrible shades of weakness and inability and sin in my heart. So me at my worst occasions, me seeing Jesus at his best. That's what he's saying. That's what discipline does. Discipline drives you to the end of yourself and to the feet of the one who loves you and laid his life down for you and is still there with you, still there for you. So don't regard it lightly. That's what Valeria read earlier. Don't regard it lightly. Don't don't be discouraged when the Lord pursues you and begins to introduce a little bit of pain or a little bit of confusion into your life. It's your Father come for you. That's what's happening. He has come to bring you back. That's why he says, don't grow weary. Strengthen your knees. The second way God reminds us of himself, he brings us back, is through discipleship, which sometimes Christians overdo it on this word. We turn it into long programs and curriculums. Discipleship is a fancy Christian word for having thoughtful relationships with other people. 
like having a good friendship. Um, because what disciples do, or what people do when they're discipling one another, is they remind each other of what's already true. So for Daniel Solomon's parents, discipling him meant like, Daniel, you're a son. You are not an orphan anymore. We're not hurting you. We're loving you. That's what discipleship looked like. That happens 10,000 times. He begins to believe it. Discipleship for the Christian, for me in college, looked like so many other friends that I had, other believers that because God had brought me into a church, I had these friends already there. They were there for me. And they said, Ben, I know you think God's a million miles away, but he is right here with you. And I'll pray for you if you don't know how to pray now. They caught me. They carried me. They prayed for me. They reminded me of what was already true. And I began to forget that other story and remember the one that they were talking about. And this is what the whole part of first part of Psalm 78 is about. God intends to use you to remind other people of what's already true. And he will use other people to remind you what's already true. This is all the talk about, listen to my instruction, the stories that we've heard and known, stories our ancestors gave us that we'll teach our children so that each generation would set its hopes on God anew. So we're not going to Denny's tonight. But my dream for RUF is that at Denny's, Denny's would be a a sacred place where we begin to talk to each other we have a great time every, every Tuesday night. My dream is that we would have a great time and we would also say, hey, what did you think about the message? Or what did you think about that song? How's the music at RUF for you? Because it's kind of new. It's kind of weird if you're not used to it. We would care for each other. We would love each other. We would engage each other. We would remind each other of what's true. I would love it. It's my dream that when we think about going to church, being a part of a small group, coming here, we would think beyond just our own schedules. And like Luke said, we would think about, if I'm not there, who's going to remind these people? Who's going to encourage them? That's my dream, is that we would begin to think that way. Other people would come into our thought process, not just me and my busy schedule. And this is why it's so encouraging to see so many of you Seniors, you're about to graduate, and I see you with the freshmen. I see you with sophomores. You haven't checked out. You're here. You're available. You're approachable. You're reminding them. You're telling them, don't worry. Ministry's a revolving door. I know all the people used to look up to graduated. It's okay. God's been faithful to this group for 20 years. He's not going to leave us now. That is so beautiful for me to see. People who haven't checked out, even though it's a hard place to be when you're the old guy and you don't know anybody. That's beautiful. That's people who take seriously the call to remind other people. Really quickly, and then the last, a last story. You know when you go around blind curves on the road, they have those big mirrors? That's who we are to each other, especially older believers. People are a few steps in front of you on the Christian life. They're like that big mirror on a blind curve. You don't know what's around the corner, but they do. And God has put them all around you to look in their life and to hear their story and to say, oh, I don't know what the circumstances are going to be, but I know my God's going to be there because he was for them and he was for them and he was for them. So we have got to start sharing our stories, telling the next generation about the faithfulness and the great works of the Lord. Our lives are on the line if we don't. The last point is a dilemma. 
If you don't have the Bible open, you don't know what happens the rest of this psalm. It's a fast-forward summary of Israel's history. And I'm sorry to tell you, but after all this great stuff, like six more times, Israel remembers, they repent, they forget, they leave the Lord, they get stuck in the story again. God sends some way, he disciplines them, he disciples them, someone reminds them, they come back, they forget, it all happens again. History repeats itself. I don't want you to leave here tonight thinking, another mountaintop, yes, I'm going to rededicate myself, I'm going to try harder, I'm going to remember God this time, I'm going to put a sticky note on my dorm room bathroom window, and I'm going to remember this time. That's not a bad thing, but if you're pinning the hopes of your future on your ability to remember, you've got another thing coming to you. God knows what kind of heart you have. He knows what kind of mind you have. And because of that, He has sent one who remembers and remembered Him perfectly to remember for you on your behalf. He sent one who remembered the Lord, never forsook Him, never got stuck in a little echo chamber of idolatry but one who was alert to the Lord, who loved his Father, who walked in his ways, who never forgot, even when he was tired, even when he was 40 days without food, he sent one to remember on your behalf because he knows you forgot, he knows you will forget. In verse 37, he says this, Though Israel has forgotten me and broken my covenant, I will never leave them, I will never forsake them. And he says this, he says, though they have forgotten my, cover, my covenant, I will atone for their sins. That's what he means when he says that I have sent one perfect on your behalf, offered him to you freely, that you might look to him and be brought home. That is how God begins to, over the course of your life and in a moment, make you right with him. Snap you out of the lies we believe, snap you out of the dark deceptions we're stuck in, brings you back to life. And then begins to pursue you hourly for the rest of eternity, reminding you, calling you back, disciplining you, discipling you, renewing you, helping you remember. Jesus is the one who gets you to the Father. And Jesus, through His Spirit, is the one who reminds you of the Father. Let's pray that those things would happen for all of us uh, tonight. Our Father, we... Thank you for your grace to us in Christ. We're about to enter into some big days where we'll talk about this, Good Friday and Easter Sunday, where we see you sending one who obeyed on our behalf, who lived on our behalf, who died on our behalf, that we might be alive to you, that we might be made new from head to toe, every square inch. Uh, Lord, we pray that even tonight you would remind us, call us out of the lies that we have gotten ourselves stuck into the cul-de-sacs that we're driving in circles in. Show us, Jesus, who is the road out of those cul-de-sacs and back to you. Bring us back to life. Stir our imaginations. Help us to remind one another of what is true already. We ask this in his name and for his sake. Amen.